Welcome to Call Your Girlfriends, a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. I'm Aminatu So. And I'm Ann Friedman. On this week's agenda, we are telling abortion stories and talking about the state of reproductive justice in America. We are joined by Renee Bracey Sherman, a reproductive justice activist and advocate who is the senior public affairs manager at the National Network of Abortion Funds. And we also have an interview that we conducted on our fall tour last year with Judith Arcana, who was a member of Jane in Abortion Service, an underground health collective in Chicago that provided abortions before Roe v. Wade made them legal nationwide. Hello, Anne Friedman. Hi, hi, hi. Good being on the same couch with you. We're talking about serious things today. (laughs) We're talking about reproductive justice today. We're talking about all the ways that we hate how other people talk about it. Not everyone, you know, like a select few of people. We really love how they frame this issue and these issues. But, you know, like the media narrative around abortion and reproductive justice has been kind of bullshit lately. We've noticed an uptick in the bullshit. <laughs> it, it's like the 90s out here. Right. It's truly like the 90s out here. It's more than a little concerning. Everybody should believe what they want to believe. Like, that's fair. But you should believe it from a place of facts. Abortion rights and reproductive justice, unfortunately, is a place where people love to let facts just like fly loosely. All Wait, you the time. mean the facts are manipulated oh, for political ends? I know. And it's just it's so annoying. I was like, just say you want to turn people into handmaids. That's a fact. <laughs> <laughs> and then we're OK. But, you know, I'm I'm talking specifically about this op ed the other day that I saw um, that Meghan McCain and Ben Sass wrote together. Why those two people have to write an op-ed together? Like, it tells you everything about evil that you need to know. I was like, you don't think that you could do this yourself? They're the same type of, like, faux middle ground scammer, though. Like, it makes sense that they would join forces for this. I don't know how to tell you this. Megan McCain is not smart enough to be a middle ground scammer. She does not. I disagree. She's she's not. She's just like a person whose father gave her, you know, like gave her access into a world and um, oh, an OG middle ground scammer. I know. It's just like <laughs> the scam's not that smart, I guess, because it's so transparent. Fair enough. But she would be on Fox News and not like on The View if she weren't effective. Uh, you know, but she is on The View, right. which and The View does this thing where they're supposed to represent women from everywhere. So also, like, that's fine. But Meghan McCain is a frequent liar on that show. But to the heart of the op-ed, here's what they say. There are many complicated debates to be had about abortion. And as unapologetic pro-lifers, we want to have those conversations based on compassion and science. Can you see my eye roll? Uh-huh. But infanticide isn't complicated. Say Meghan McCain and Ben Sass. People infanticide are you kidding me it's no what is the so-called science that they are citing the science of infanticide and that is based in religion and based in lies and so what they're really talking about is this controversial bill that ben sass introduced in january that basically threatens prison time for doctors who don't provide medical care to an infant that's born alive during uh attempted late-term abortion which p.s doesn't happen oh 
The act like definitely failed to overcome Democratic filibuster in the Senate last month. So, you know, the debate is raging. This is something that like Meghan McCain talks about on The View, which is a huge platform. Ben Sass is a legislator. Also, you know, allegedly has a platform. It's truly wild to me that it's 2019 and this is something that's like allowed to just like pass as fact. Well, it's also like, okay, this this trick of saying if you pass a law banning something that doesn't actually happen, because if you talk to abortion providers like in the I don't even know what tiny percentage point probability that an infant is like somehow born alive during an attempted abortion procedure, they do not then kill the fetus or whatever. You know what I mean? Like that is not a thing, even in the tiny, tiny circumstance that they're talking about, like that is not a common procedure. And so essentially it's this twist of saying, we are going to ban something that doesn't actually happen as a way of trying to convince the broader public that this is a thing that actually happens. It's like me being like, I'm banning unicorns on public streets. No more unicorns <laughs> in public. The unicorn poop problem is out of control. And it's like, that doesn't mean there are unicorns on the street. Like it just means that I've decided it's expedient to like, you know, rally people against unicorns. Right. And you know, and and the thing is that like, it is, it's misinformation that is offensive, but it's also misinformation that's genuinely incredibly dangerous right. to spread. There's a reason that the entire medical community came out against that bill. It's not just abortion providers who are against it. It's all doctors because it's nonsense. It's just like another attack on healthcare, which is what they're always doing. Just like tired lies and ridiculous, ridiculous misinformation. And it's not the first time this has happened. The reason that we were, you know, we made the the, the LOL callback to the 90s is that Republicans have been trying this shit since the beginning of time and they're gaining ground. Not only are they gaining ground, they don't get enough pushback in times like these. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing that's happening is I'm having a little like George W. Bush flashbacks in terms of some of the things that are going on in the federal government, under this horrible Cheeto administration's Health and Human Services Department, they are doing things like Trump just signed a domestic gag rule barring clinics that provide or refer patients for abortions from getting any federal family planning funds. Mm. So it's basically like we don't want to help you make decisions about contraception and access better contraception, but we are also going to limit your options when you are pregnant when you don't want to be right it's like the whole push is to to get women to get pregnant and to make more families the thing then everybody hides behind not everybody disingenuous republicans hide behind the fact that they care about children if you want to know how much people care about children you should see how they care for mothers this country has an abysmal rate of caring for mothers and for caring for children who are actually alive, uh, give the children who are actually alive, give them health insurance, and then I'll believe that you care about them. Where is the Meghan McCain and Ben Sass op-ed about people having stillbirths in immigrant detention, for example? Like, where is the outrage about, like, the lack of health care for the people who are carrying precious babies in immigration detention? Like, I'm seri- seriously, like, where... The hypocrisy just knows no bounds. Yeah, the hypocrisy knows no bounds. You know, another reason I think that this is, I I care about this stuff so much or that everybody should is that it also just puts um, Planned Parenthood in the crosshairs all of the time. 
if you can get the population to believe that all Planned Parenthood is doing is like killing babies, aka infanticide, then all you're doing is providing cover to the people who are trying to harm people outside of Planned Parenthood clinics that are trying to harm people who work there. And it just really pushes this message further that people should be afraid of Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood is a healthcare provider. It is as simple as that. It's just very frustrating. Well, the heart of this debate is actually the fact that there are some people in this country who don't want to let healthcare providers just be healthcare providers, mm-hmm. right? Like, if you truly saw abortion care, access to contraception, access to the whole spectrum of things that let people make reproductive choices for themselves, which is defined way broader than just abortion and contraception. If you were really interested in all of that, you would say it's all healthcare, right? Like Mm -hmm. this is 100% not science, which is why that things like that op-ed are so infuriating. I'm sorry, like the scientists and the doctors have spoken. (laughs) Right. And, you know, and it's not just the op-ed. There's just like shenanigans at the state level. There's shenanigans at the federal level. And it's pretty relentless, the cycle of fear mongering. So to talk about this a little bit more, I called Renee Bracey Sherman, who has briefly appeared on the show before. She's an incredible activist and someone who works as a senior public affairs manager at the National Network of Abortion Funds. We love abortion funds. Love an abortion fund. But anyway, here I am with the brilliant Renee Bracey Sherman. Renee, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Before we get into it, I would love it if you just gave the quick overview of what you do and what your reproductive justice work is all about. So uh, officially, I'm the Senior Public Affairs Manager at the National Network of Abortion Funds. Um, We are a national organization with a network of abortion funds across the country, over 70 abortion funds that help folks raise money to pay for their abortions. They do everything from raising the money to practical support, to doula support, translation services, all of the things across the country. Um, And I work at the National Network of Abortion Funds where um, we work to support those abortion funds to do that phenomenal work. And I run We Testify, which is our leadership program for people who've had abortions, particularly folks of color who've had abortions, queer folks, uh, folks with disabilities, immigrants, folks living at the margins who want to share their abortion stories and really talk about the intersections of our identities, particularly race, class, and gender identity. And then for a long time, I have just been an abortion storyteller where I share my abortion story. I had an abortion when I was 19. And it's something that is really important to me to talk about and to really break down the stigma, really reach other folks of color, particularly other black women who've had abortions, and know that we don't have to be ashamed about our abortions, our decisions, and that we can talk about it openly and honestly. Uh, Yeah, and we've had you on the show before, albeit in, I think, a pretty limited way. And since you were on the show last time, I mean, the Supreme Court has changed quite a bit. Um, Oh my gosh, yes. (laughs) And I think one reason why we wanted to revisit... Um, you know, or devote an episode to reproductive justice and in particular abortion rights is because this shift has many of us feeling kind of um, unprotected, for lack of a better word, um, when it comes to 
law and policy. And I'm wondering, in your world, the people that you're activists you're working with, and maybe you yourself, what is the feeling you have right now in this moment? And how is it different from maybe previous years when you've been doing this work? I appreciate that you separated out reproductive justice and abortion rights, because I think a lot of people think about those as synonyms, and they're not. Um, You know, abortion rights is obviously making sure that people have the right to an abortion and are able to access it. But reproductive justice is a human rights framework that was coined by black women over 20 years ago because choice, the framework of choice, isn't truly accessible for people of color, particularly for black women, because sometimes you don't actually have a choice and that you should be able to parent a child with dignity and respect without fear of state-sanctioned violence, without um, government overreach, all of these things. And you should be able to make that decision free from any type of coercion. Obviously, it's really scary. The idea that Roe could fall is terrifying. And we already have been in the middle of the impact of Roe not being accessible for a long time. To be honest, it never really was something for particularly low-income folks and people of color. This is why abortion funds were created, simply because right after Roe was enacted and they legalized abortion, anti-choice politicians have been chipping at it every day that they can. And so abortion funds were created because they decided to pass the Hyde Amendment, which means that Medicaid uh, recipients or anyone on a federal health insurance program, so whether that's their federal employee or some state employees, they're on Medicare, Medicaid, folks who are in the military and TRICARE, folks who are enrolled in health insurance through the Indian Health Service Program, All of those folks are not able to use their insurance to pay for an abortion. Therefore, it has always been inaccessible financially for those folks. It has always been a money chase. It has always been difficult to find a clinic. And obviously, as other cases have uh, chipped away at, at abortion access, like Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which gave us the undue burden test, um, we you know, we are just feeling really challenged. And yet I I can't help but feel like, yes, this is also something that we have been ready for and dealing with for a long time. Because if you do your work focusing on the most marginalized people, the folks who have the most limited access, then what's happening right now, you saw it coming and you're not surprised by it at all. The way that politicians attack communities of color in particular is always how they're going to come for the rest of everyone else. And so I think that this is one of those moments that, like I said, it feels really scary. And it's a moment where we double down on the work that we have been doing. We double down on the work that abortion funds have been doing because Roe has never made abortion access Uh, accessible for everyone. Yeah, I think about that a lot when I see the classic slogan, we won't go back. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because I really, I'm like, well, who's the we? Some of us never left. Yeah, who's the (laughs) we? Um, And I'm, I'm curious about how you are negotiating some people who have not always felt that their 
right to access an abortion or their right to live a full, expansive definition of reproductive justice has been under threat. So I'm talking about basically like people with money, people in states where there are fewer bills chipping away at when and how they can access services, people who essentially kind of people not at the margins. What do we do at a moment like this where it's like, okay, people who aren't at the margins are feeling threatened in a new way. And that is in some ways a powerful opportunity. But in other ways, you know, everything you're describing to me is sort of like the narrative is getting a little muddled, right? Like that this is this is a first big unprecedented threat. And I'm wondering about how you see the kind of the opportunity versus the obligation to correct that narrative. I think... It's that we just say, we need all the help that we can get. So come on down, you know, let's get all down in the soil. Let's do the work. Um, I think we can't afford to turn folks away from this work. But also I think that it's important for folks who haven't maybe been paying attention for a while or haven't been doing this work for a while to really think about um, whose lead they can follow. Mm. particularly the lead of communities of color who have been doing this for a long time. I think it's really important that we trust the expertise of the independent clinics, some of them who have been around for, you know, 50 some odd years or more, um, to trust the work of the abortion fund leaders who are on the ground. They are on the front lines listening to folks who are calling abortion funds about what it is that they need they are hearing from them. And so I think if folks want to get involved, please, please join us. I think it's really, really important that, um, you know, we all do our best to protect access. And there is a framework that exists. And so trying to make sure that you work within it simply because there's a lot of security precautions that people don't think about when it comes to providing abortion access, the way that volunteers are screened, the way that we're trying to make sure that clinics are safe and that they are protected in the way that feels best for them. How do we do this and respect the folks who have been doing it for a long time because they have a lot of expertise, particularly for the leaders of color, making sure that you listen to them. People on the ground know what's best. And I think I will also say working at a national organization This is why I think it's really exciting for us to support abortion funds on the ground. We do our best not to do a top-down approach in the way that uh, we do our organizing. We want to make sure that they have solutions that are best for them on the ground because what works in Boston is not going to work in San Antonio and is is going to be different from Oakland, which is going to be different from Chicago, which is going to be different from Omaha. These are all completely different places. And I think it's important that we trust the expertise that's on the ground. And how would you suggest someone who's listening to this figure out who those leaders are? I mean, is, is it as simple as go to the database and look up your local abortion fund or your local independent clinic? I mean, if you're kind of trying to take a broader view as well, are there resources that you would point people to? Absolutely. It can be as simple as just going to abortionfunds.org and you know, looking up your local abortion fund and asking when their next volunteer training is. Honestly, that's actually how I got into this work. 
I know, you know, I had an abortion when I was 19. So yes, technically that's how I got into this work. But <laughs> the way I really got into it was I started volunteering with my local abortion fund, Access Women's Health Justice out in Oakland. And I was a practical support volunteer, which is actually something that I do to this day. I house people who are traveling from out of, you know, out of state or across the state for an abortion. I give people rides. You know, I've trained as an abortion doula, so I've held people's hands during their abortions. And that has honestly been the most rewarding experience for me. And so if you just call your local abortion fund, they often have opportunities where you can either be on the hotline or the cold line for folks who are calling for funding. Some do the practical support. Or you can reach out to your local independent abortion clinic. You can find their information through the Abortion Care Network's website. And sometimes they are looking for volunteers. Sometimes it's clinic escorts. Sometimes they don't want clinic escorts. And so make sure that you respect that. But they often need just volunteers to like help take out the trash and like do little repairs around the clinic and just basic support. And you don't know how much that means to a clinic. So check in with your local clinic to see if there's something that you can do. I really think that we can get creative in the ways that we can support for abortion access. It doesn't always need to look like protesting. It's often just the everyday things that makes someone's abortion a more, you know, supportive experience. I just remember when I had my abortion that I didn't have anyone to go with me to the clinic. My partner said some really nasty things to me when he dropped me off. I didn't feel like I could talk to my parents about it. So if I had had someone to hold my hand in that clinic, that would have changed my life. And so that's part of what I do I make sure that I am that person. I am there for someone else, a complete stranger. And you have no idea how much that can change someone's life. And so if you have the opportunity, excuse me. No, no. If you have the, <laughs> if you have the opportunity, um, you should do it. And I think that that's a great way to get involved. And then, of course, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be remiss if I didn't mention um, our Bullathon is coming up this year. You may see people on social media starting to raise money for our 10th annual National Abortion Access Bullathon. All the local abortion funds are doing it. There's like 65 events in 38 states and 80% of our network is participating. And so you can meet folks in your community who want to support abortion access. They're raising money. Most of the abortion funds raise their budgets on this Bullathon money. You can raise money from your network um, and then you can go to the event and either go bowling or some have, I know in Atlanta at ARC Southeast, they have a dance-a-thon. The DC Abortion Fund has a game-a-thon. There's so many different events. So, you know, look up and see what's in your community so that you can participate. And then last but not least, if there isn't a local abortion fund in your community and you and some folks want to start one, reach out to us at the National Network of Abortion Funds and we can help you do that because there's always going to be need uh, to support people who need abortions. I want to ask, 
ask you about a question about staying informed and up to date on reproductive justice issues, because I think something I experience a lot is I will see these headlines flash across my phone that's like, teenager in Alabama is suing on behalf of a fetus because his girlfriend got an abortion without his consent, which is wild. Um, Or, you know, I see another heartbeat bill or like, you know, a constitutional amendment in another state or and then all these shenanigans with health and human services and the global gag rule. And I really the feeling of trying to stay up to date on all these twists and turns that I know as a whole add up to an important complete picture of what's going on can feel very overwhelming and overwhelming (laughs) and I'm wondering if there are issues or words or states or like is is there a filter that you kind of apply for thinking about in this moment this is something that you know you're paying attention to and you would suggest that we tune into as well yeah it's exhausting every day I feel like we just wake up with a new state trying to ban abortion earlier and earlier and earlier. To me, an abortion ban is an abortion ban. It's just that simple. It is a ban on abortion. It doesn't matter what week they've made up this time. One of the things I do keep an eye on is when there's something newer and wackier, I think about, okay, great, how many more states are we going to see that in? The one that actually is kind of blowing my mind a little bit, and I haven't seen a whole lot of information on it, is actually that in Puerto Rico, they are trying to do a parental consent for anyone under the age of 21. Whoa. As listeners may remember, you become officially legally an adult at 18. I think 38 states have parental involvement laws that anyone under 18 must uh, either notify or get consent from one or more parents. You shouldn't have to go to anyone else to have an abortion. If you want one, you should get one. I think it's really exhausting to kind of see like, oh, what will they come up with next? Georgia is trying to pass six-week ban and I think a 20-week ban. They're like doing the same thing that Ohio did a couple years ago, and you're going to see more states do this, where they do the six-week and the 20-week ban at the same time. So that way... When someone signs the 20-week ban, if the governor signs it, then they can say, oh, look, see, I'm moderate, which is exactly what former Ohio Governor John Kasich did. And he often points to that when he's part-time running for president. So you're going to see more states doing that to try to be like, look, we're not so heartless. You still are. But... I keep an eye on the bright spots like Georgia State Representatives Renita Shannon and Park Cannon. They actually shared their abortion stories from the floor and in the committee when trying to push back against this bill. And as I was watching all of the testimony, particularly these two black women state representatives sharing their abortion stories and All of the folks of color who are fighting against this, it really showed me the racial divide in anti-abortion bills in that when it went to the vote to get out of committee, all of the folks of color voted against the ban. And it was all the white folks who were voting for it. So I think we have to keep talking about the racial justice aspect, lifting up the leaders of color who are fighting tooth and nail to make sure that their constituents have access to abortions. 
And then I also have to try to focus on what are the good policies that are happening. And so I know that this whole later abortion conversation came about after New York passed the Reproductive Health Act. What they were trying to do, what they did, which is really amazing, they codified Roe. They took abortion out of the criminal code because, hi, it's healthcare, not a crime. And they are making sure that folks in New York do not have to travel out of state to get a later abortion. This is critical for folks who are having a really difficult time trying to get an abortion as soon as they want one. Pregnancies can be dangerous sometimes. And so if they need an abortion later in pregnancy, they are able to get one. And I think that that's really critical. Right now we're taping this and I'm in my home state of Illinois. I have to shout out the fact that they are trying to repeal um, the parental involvement law here. And just last year, they both codified Roe um, and they are now making sure that Medicaid covers abortion, which for a long time it did not. And knowing that Illinois is this oasis in the Midwest where access is really, really difficult. I'm just glad that they are pushing a lot of proactive policy. Yes. And then, of course, like states, states like Oregon that um, not only last year did Medicaid coverage, but also it's Medicaid coverage of abortion for undocumented folks. And I think that that's really important to be at that intersection. So, yes, the six week bans, they're scary. The, you know, boyfriends suing, like how ridiculous. If you actually pay attention to the really wacky bills that they are trying to pass and don't go anywhere, you can actually see, oh, this is where they're headed. This is where they're headed. And we can actually start to think, how do we want to fight back against this? I love that. Renee, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Oh, thank you for having me. I just want to say, if you're listening to this and you've had an abortion, know that you are loved and supported. Everyone loves someone who's had an abortion, and we love you. Renee and the National Network of Abortion Funds, such incredible work. We love them. The NNAF Bolathon is happening imminently. And if you want to raise some money for people to access abortion, even in these trying times, check it out. We'll include a link in the show notes. It truly is a lot of fun. And I say this to somebody who hates bowling. It is like some of the best fun I have all year. Bowling, a core sport of my Midwest people, is something that I am <laughs> good at for no reason, which is how I know. I'm just like, wow, some things are culturally baked in. I love it. I love abortions and bowling. So I a great bowl fit for, for abortion. I bowl for abortion <laughs> and I have a blast doing it. <laughs> and I'm actually not the worst. So it's always great. See, I knew it. I've, I, you have good aim. I, you know, and it checks all my boxes. You know how I'm always like, I'm not a competitive person. The bolathon is when I turn into a monster. I was like, I'm trying to raise all these funds. I'm trying to not be in the bottom. It just, it really is like the perfect Venn diagram of all the things that I, I aspire to. Yes.
So when we were on tour last year, fall 2018. Um, so long ago. So <laughs> long ago. It's a different. It's a different era. One of our one of the best things that we do, in my opinion, is shout out a couple of girl gangs, historical girl gangs that we have been into. One of the girl gangs that we talk about is Jane, an abortion collective that was based in Chicago. This was a pre-Roe v. Wade underground service that addressed the increasing number of unsafe abortions being performed by untrained providers. Jane performed more than 11,000 abortions. And as you can imagine, some people's feathers got ruffled. And some of the women who were providing the abortions went to jail. And we have this incredible mugshot of this babe in, you know, like Chicago, 1972, and we actually found her. We found the the woman who that was. Her name was Judith. Her name is Judith Arcana. And she's got a great website. She wasn't hard to find. You have like you have to go to the website if only for her the picture. The picture of her is like ten out of ten fantastic. And uh, so Judith was a Jane in Chicago. She is an iconic feminist, and she joined us on stage in our Portland show. And it was really great to talk to her about how you know. A lot has changed when it comes to abortion and also not a lot has changed. And, uh, you know, she's just one of those like incredible feminist ancestors that everybody should be so happy that we have. And it's really, um, you know, it's been really inspiring, like talking to her about the activism that she's done and what she's currently doing. So here is Judith Arcana. Hi, Judith. Hey. <laughs> You're kind of a local rock star, huh? They love that's, you. Who that's, knew? That's the vibe I'm getting. <laughs> Judith, you've written that Jane was an open secret in Chicago in the pre-row years. Even cops would come to Jane if a family member needed an abortion. How did you start working as a Jane? I started in the summer of 1970, uh, or excuse me, I met them, so to speak, in the summer of 1970 because I thought I was pregnant, which would have been a very bad thing at that time, both for the potential baby and for me. So I asked around. A friend told me this was the place. I called, had long conversations with this extraordinary woman who said her name was Jane. Turns out, that was not the case. Um, <laughs> within a couple months, I was one of the people saying that my name was Jane. Um, she suggested that I come to an orientation and sign up. She said, I think you might. And she was right. So I joined. What did being a Jane entail? Were you just answering phones? Were you actually performing abortions? Like, talk a little bit about what the kind of experience was. Sure. Part. Um, the service lasted about four years, roughly, give or take, and it evolved through that period of time. So that at the beginning, it was a matter of one or two women getting telephone numbers of people who had been shown to be, by previous experience, fairly safe and competent. And that evolved into women learning how to counsel the women who were coming through the service. And then the counselors began to learn more about physiology and healthcare, medical practice. So that by early 71, we had begun to learn how to do it ourselves. And of course, the methods were somewhat different from what those methods are still used. But now, as I'm sure you all know, there are more, all kinds of possibilities. So that by the time the service was over, we were the clinic, uh, you know, freestanding, only us 
taking care of business. <laughs> and you all got to think about that for like tomorrow or the day after. Just um, saying. <laughs> Wait, so was everybody who was a Jane a volunteer? I'm just really curious about how everybody supported themselves financially. We were curious too. <laughs> um, as it began, um, certainly, I mean, we were this underground outfit. No one was paying us to do it. And it was rough. Everybody had jobs of one kind or another. Some were married women being supported by husbands and various other combinations. At some point, I would say 18 months to two years in, the conversation about that very thing began at meetings. We met once a week and um, we wound up deciding once we were the whole clinic ourselves, money was coming in, although we of course did not charge what the guys did, um, we charged $100 or whatever you could pay. And this was in a time when people were charging anywhere from one to $5,000 mm. wow. for abortions. They ain't cheap now either, you know. So we said, okay, we have this money, because even though it was tiny, what came in per woman, so many women came through the service that there was money to buy the medications, to buy the equipment, and to pay us. Mm. So now remember, we're talking about a very long time ago, so the decision was made that for any job you did on a weekly basis, you would get $25. So that at one point, for instance, I was counseling, I was doing phone work, and I was doing medical work, so I was making $75 a week mm. in that period which was equivalent to whatever fairly shy salaries would be now. Hmm. You were arrested for this work, but you just said that like cops would bring people. This is actually your mugshot. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. People do love the mugshots, Judith. <laughs> they love them. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering how that happened if, like, cops were bringing people there and also um, mm -hmm. if, that, uh, if that shifted the way you were providing services or, like, how you felt about what you were doing. What happened, no one will ever really know, but as near as we could tell then and pretty much what we, those of us who are still alive, actually believe happened was that there was a particular woman who was coming through the service on a particular day and in, in early May of 1972 and she uh, told her sister-in-law that she was doing this and she, in fact, may have even brought the sister-in-law with her because people did, we had a front where people were given the address and they would come to the front and then we would take them to what we called the place where their abortions would be done. And so the sister-in-law, this part I'm not so clear on, but anyway, may have actually been at the front. But in any case, she's the one who called the cops and she called cops in her district which is not the neighborhood that we ever worked in. So they were not, as we like to say, our cops. Um, also, that time was when the Roe case was coming up toward the court, and a lot of people would have liked very much 
to have this sort of what they thought of as negative publicity, anti-abortion publicity. So those two kinds of the, the sister-in-law story and the case coming up to the court story are probably why we got cracked, but we'll never really know. And it certainly wasn't the people in our neighbor, our regular working neighborhoods. Did that change the way that you um, started working? Well, not really. <laughs> Actually, um, the seven of us, I, I was one of the, well, obviously, um, we stopped, the seven of us, stopped working um, as soon as the bust happened. The rest of the service, I think, maybe took off a week or two and collected money so that they could send the women, because there were people who had appointments at that time, and they all had to be taken care of. So money was given to them to fly to Washington, D.C., or there were like, you know, at least a half a dozen places in the United States that you could get legal abortions, including the Capitol. And um, so they were doing that kind of work in the immediate couple of weeks after the bust. And then the service just uh, quietly picked right up again. But we, the seven, because we were in the public eye, it was all over the papers and all of that. Plus we were searching for a lawyer and doing, we were doing legal education instead of medical education in that summer. But uh, several of us went back to work in the fall. The service continued. It only shut down really after the road decision and it didn't even do that right away because we had to, as we did about everything that really mattered, of course, we argued. Some people thought we should keep doing it. Other people thought we should shut down. Once abortion was legal, it was medical practice and that meant we were practicing medicine without a license. And anyway, a few months after the road decision, the service closed. So for a lot of us who live in places where um, reproductive rights are still relatively robustly protected and, you know, abortion services are still pretty available. That reality feels pretty far away. I know that's not the case everywhere in America. Indeed not. Yeah, and I'm, I'm wondering about on like a level of just like, you know, feeling or like conversation with people, how, you know, that time compared to now and whether, have like some then and now feelings that I don't know quite how to articulate. Yeah. My position, my attitude, my thinking about this is that in our present time, out here at nearly the end of the second decade of the 21st century, um, what has happened in the United States is that minds and spirits, um, intellects and feelings have been seriously informed by, and that's the mildest way of putting it, the anti-abortion movement, which has created definitions and ways of thinking and feeling about abortion that were not that simply were not in the time that we were working. And in fact, a couple times this evening, um, and even in our early conversation before the show, we talked a little bit about shame. When I began to write poems, stories, essays that are rooted in my work in abortion, I thought, well, it's been a long time, I should do some contemporary research, and a couple of wonderful people in clinics here in Portland, um, when I asked, allowed me to come in, talk with them, and some of the folks who were coming through, several people, bless them, let me come in. So there I was again, decades later, standing beside, sometimes holding the hand of 
a person having an abortion. And what I learned was about shame. People were filled with shame. They were ashamed of themselves for having abortions. And I had never seen that before. I certainly hadn't felt it when I had my own abortion. My friends didn't. My colleagues didn't. We had some problems. We knew it was illegal. You know, there were all kinds of hard and difficult and sometimes even scary, terrible stuff. But not this mindset that abortion is murder, that a woman who does it is a killer, that she should be ashamed of herself. And I'll tell you, she is. And that's not okay. So that's a major... I hope I'm answering the question yeah, you were asking. Yeah, you got it. You nailed it. <laughs> um, it's a major difference. Um, and it was created. It was purposely mm-hmm. created, and it continues to be fomented by the anti-abortion movement. Um, I'm wondering if you have recommendations, because we don't have enough time. I cannot ask you the one bajillion questions I want to ask you about your experiences. and I'm wondering if... I and everyone else want to learn more about Jane or about other things that you think are important in this vein. What should we watch and read and be aware of? Two of my shows, I have three, but two of them are a movie called Our Bodies, Our Doctors, which is directed by an excellent Portland-based director, Jan Hocken. And you can find Our Bodies, Our Doctors online. Of course, it has a website. Um, And it features the people who are doing abortions now, legally, and what they, even though it's legal, have to put up with because of this mindset I was going on about caused by the anti-abortion movement. And also, there are fiction films in the works about the abortion service. One of them is completed and is now showing at festivals. It's called Ask for Jane. And it was created by producer and actor Kate Cortlio and um, director and screenwriter Rachel V. Carey. And these folks are seriously on the case. <laughs> Judith, where can people find your work? Books? Where can you find this? You can find, first of all, you can easily find them online. Go to my website, go to the book page, click on these book covers, these wonderful book covers. Look, here's one that's even got the mugshot. Um, Judith, what's the URL? It's so old-fashioned because, you know, who I am. It's juditharcana.com. That's classic! That is classic! Classic, classic. (laughs) Judith, thank you so much so much. This made my whole week. Made Thank the whole you. Week. Yeah. Judith. 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 The thing that I keep thinking about from this interview is the thing that she says about shame and how that is something that has really changed. And I think that's why it's important. I know we started off talking about this op-ed and narratives around abortion. What is a good abortion? Who deserves reproductive justice? And I think that is where more so even than state level legislation that's chipping away at stuff. That's where I really see the anti-choice moving movement as having succeeded is like if people who are seeking basic medical care to 
like just preserve the quality of their lives, take care of their existing children, do what is best for them and for their families are stigmatized so heavily. That's how people who are against reproductive justice have really won. And I'm, I'm, and I really think that that's why, like Renee was saying as well, this is all of our responsibility to keep talking about it, to destigmatize it, check out, shout your abortion, talk to your friends about your experiences with reproductive justice and trying to get what you need. I think that that is really what matters. Right. You know, and if you're one of those people, I think that is listening to the show and you are still, you know, you still think like, "Mm, this makes me a little bit queasy. Why are people shouting their abortions? And why is it a thing that we celebrate? I think that looking into a lot of the resources that we point to is useful. And I think that also remembering that it is about healthcare. It is about basic healthcare and it's about privacy. Shouting is about privacy. <laughs> it is, about, it is about, like abortion. Abortion care is about the privacy of women and people who need abortions to, to make decisions between them and their doctors and not have it be some sort of political referendum for where the world is at. I would really say that if, you know, it's something that you are struggling with, that definitely like reading more about it is is an entry point. And also when you look at a lot of the statistics about abortion, People who get abortion are not others. They're literally your neighbors. There are moms. There are there are cousins. There are the women who have taught us. There are people voting against abortion rights. Right. Frankly, there are like, literally yeah. the people picketing against us. Sometimes, <laughs> the yeah. Are like, there are the girls that you went to college with. The girls that you went to high school with. There's not like a race or a class or a kind of person who gets and abortion and it says nothing about your character and it says nothing about who you are. Literally, it's only the kind of person who could plausibly get pregnant. That is the only kind of person. That's the kind of of person who gets an abortion. And, and I think, I don't know, you know, I think that really challenging yourself to think why it is such a polarizing political issue that people think they can talk about in a way that is not rooted in science. And in fact, and that tells you everything that you need to know if the attacks that people use against a position that you feel queasy about are um, based in lies that should tell you everything that you need to know shout your abortion if you can and for those of us who cannot shout our abortions totally okay if you can't shout your abortion and it says nothing about you as a person so yeah. anyway we're like we're here to shout about everybody's abortion to get mad at megan mccain <laughs> and yeah. at ben sass for you and i also have to say like listening to renee and judith in rapid succession also makes me think like what is our plan for actually providing services in places where they are currently functionally unavailable even mm. though roe v wade is supposedly still the law of the land and abortion is supposedly legal in all 50 states um you're trying to be a jane and you know what though i i mean listen my talents do not lie in the realm of healthcare provision <laughs> <laughs> you but be, you would be so good though you'd be such a good jane you know what though i feel like i could be like jane back office like the spreadsheet the like the like <laughs> let me let me like give you this paperwork to take home like jane logistics call Anne. for real though what what would your what would your jane role i feel like you'd be an amazing jane you are really good with like you know the the nuts and bolts of what needs to happen for some home health care i would totally get into like helping on the healthcare side because i'm not afraid of that i know you are squeeze me out but i also honestly 
I want to be the person who is like fake friends with the police. <laughs> I like that's what I want. You I want to be like the fixer. I want to yeah. be the fixer where like the cop and I look at each other and we're like, we have to fight in public so people think that we're not on the same side, but like you're like we're running this Harriet Tubman for abortion situation here. So let's do this. Mm. That's what I want. Jane front office. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Something about recognizing that there are practical roles to play is what I love about Judith's story too. It's like, yeah, like thinking about, okay, maybe you are not actually like greasing some cop palms to keep the uh, underground abortion service <laughs> open, but like, like using the skill set you have in the service of protecting everyone's access to healthcare. I love that. Right. And this is also my media literacy plug. If you see these op-eds that are off the chains just lies or you watch these segments on the view and you're not happy about them it's actually within your power to say something you can write a letter to the editor p.s women do not do yeah, in the same numbers that's as men literally what i was oh, sorry say. <laughs> it just so happens that women do not send enough letters to the editor so uh you know this is your shot at getting published in a major newspaper and you can also tweet at the shows like my recommendation for the view is that next time they want to talk about medical issues, they should probably have Dr. Jen Gunther on the show. I love her. Right. Instead of fake doctor Megan McCain. So it would do such a better service to everybody who watches. It's not a, it is a, it is a sizable segment of the population that watches morning television mm -hmm. and it would be nice for them to know what the facts are. Right. Yes. A sizable population, but not as sizable as the population that could potentially get pregnant. So <laughs> I'm like, we have you outnumbered. And also like, think of, think of the majority. Yeah. Listen, I got 99 problems, but a uterus ain't one. You know what? Uh, <laughs> I am, I am so happy that there is that, that go you got that going for you. I do. I Silver do. linings, not uterine linings. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, <laughs> I will see you on the couch again. Hope everybody has a great weekend. See you on the internet. Bye, boo-boo. You can find us many places on the internet on our website, callyourgirlfriend.com. You can download the show anywhere you listen to your faves or on Apple Podcasts, where we would love it if you left us a review. You can email us at callyrgf at gmail.com. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at callyrgf. You can even leave us a short and sweet voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. Our associate producer is Destry Maria Sidney. This podcast is produced by Gina Dalvac.